Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you, men, for being here. What a delight to be at Grace Community Church. I am so thankful for Brad and Marco and the team, so many strong and sound men at this church. So thankful for John MacArthur, truly the Spurgeon of the age in the downgrade in which we find ourselves. And it is true that we are in perilous times and evil days, and yet God is doing an amazing work uh, to grow his true church and sift it and purify us all. And so Grace Community has been at the very forefront of that glorious work of our great God. And I give thanks to God for this church and for you. So thank you for being here this morning. We hear today that men need many things. Men need to not be men, fundamentally. Men should be males, but not in a really manly way. If men get too manly, they should start using an inside voice again, and they should confess their toxicity. Toxic masculinity is one of the key phrases of our age. We hear as well that men need to be like women. Men, you see, have antisocial traits. Men can be disagreeable and tough and not maximally empathetic, which is true. And so men need to listen and to be gentle and to not be distinctly masculine. Men need to be like women. Similarly, we hear today that boyish boys in many cases need medication and therapy, not for real conditions that they may have, that may need treatment in different forms. No, we hear that boyish boys, just by virtue of being boyish, need medication and therapy. They need the boyishness in them damped down. They need to be less energetic, assertive, loud, and aggressive. Anyone who has a boy will know that having a boy can, in fact, bring some challenges. Uh, I have one in my home, and I love him to pieces. He is all boy, but what my son needs is not fundamentally some sort of pill that will take the boyishness out of him. What my son really needs and what so, so many boys in America and beyond need is a father. We hear that men further need to embrace our obsolescence. The age of men is over. Men need to confess their masculine privilege Men need to be inclusive, equitable, and woke. Women need to lean forward. Men need to lean back. We don't need men to lead in the home, in the church, and in society, as this church would stand for in different forms, as I would stand for. No, what we need today is women to save us. Think about the movies and the shows that pop up on your Netflix account or your Amazon account or whatever account you may have. There are so many nowadays. In those entertainment venues, women are the superheroes now. Women save the men. It used to be that men save the women. Now it's reversed. Women today, increasingly, are the heroic warriors. Women are the bosses of the men, and the men stand meekly to the side as women give the instructions and women do the saving. For those of you familiar with the account of Genesis 3, 1 through 13, that may sound familiar. Brothers, I want you to hear a different call. 
this morning. It is an ancient call. Men need something better than all this falsehood I have laid out. Men need Jesus. Men need Jesus infinitely and eternally. Every single man needs the shed blood of King Jesus. And men saved by Jesus need the church. Jesus saves us from hell. Jesus gives us knowledge of God the Father. But Christianity does not end with the moment of our salvation. Christianity for you and for me begins in the moment of our salvation. And when you are saved, when you leave the world and you turn to Jesus and you claim his shed blood for all your sins and you claim his resurrection for eternal life over the grave, you are born again. You are washed clean. You are made new. The miracle of miracles has happened for you. The greatest miracle that the world could know and has ever known. The miracle of regeneration. The miracle of being born again. And when that happens for you, now you need the church. Every last one of us does. One of the delusions that men are tempted to is to think that we can be self-sufficient. Raise your hand if you have ever been required to put together something in your home, piece of furniture, some sort of household appliance. Some of you are very good at this. Some of us start to feel fear and trembling at this assignment. Raise your hand if you have ever started to put something together without looking at the directions. <laughs> Brad, it is 100% in this room, just so you know. Okay, that was an important survey. <laughs> we, we are all tempted in some form to self-sufficiency and to think that we got this. We can figure this out. I'm not here to tell you as a man that you are an idiot or a goofball or obsolescent. I'm not here to say that to you. I'm here to challenge you in Christ, in love, but I'm here to ennoble you. I'm here, by God's grace, with whatever I've got, to lift up your head, frankly, in a culture that wants you to put your head down. But I will say, we are all profoundly challenged by Scripture, by the Word of God, which indicates to us that every last person, man or woman alike, and every last man must not be self-sufficient. We must not careen through life, if you will, without reading the instructions. We desperately need God's Word. And when we have God's Word taught to us, preached to us, applied to us through the church, then we have what we most need on the earth. In what follows in this first session, we're going to see why exactly. We're going to look together at 1 Timothy 4 in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament. We're going to see three truths 
that show us why every single man needs the church. It's a men's conference, so we're focusing on men. Every person needs the church, yes. But I want to look with you at this passage this morning, 1 Timothy 4. We're going to walk through it at rapid fire pace in order to see why we men need the church. In our next session, I'm going to walk through why the church needs men, strong men. All of us need what is here. Our first truth then is that men are in spiritual war and need shepherding. First truth this morning, men are in spiritual war and need shepherding. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn to your word, I pray your rich and undeserved blessing on our time of study. I pray that you will indeed ennoble and strengthen these men. And I pray that you will give us all eyes to see just how tremendously we need you, how unself-sufficient we all are, and how much we need the church you have so graciously given us. In Jesus' undefeated name we pray, amen. These verses from the Apostle Paul writing to his disciple Timothy at the end of Paul's life, near the end, set the table for our time together in this first session. This passage, verses 1 through 5, shows us a big part of why we all need the church. The reason given in this passage is quite simply that there is terrible, deceitful teaching out there. There is deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that some in later times are departing from the faith to follow. So this shows us right off the bat that no man and no human being is in a neutral zone. We are not in peacetime. You yourself are not in peacetime. You may think, I'm just a guy. I'm just making my way through life. I don't hate anybody. I'm not at war with anybody that I know of. I'm just trying to make it one day at a time, bro. But in reality, what the word of God teaches every last one of us is that whether we choose it or not, consciously, a war has already chosen us. This is what is happening and will happen in the church. There are doctrines of demons being taught, end of verse one, which means teachings that sound good to many, but in truth oppose the word of God in entirety. There are terrible falsehoods out there. Paul says in verse two that there are insincere liars among the church. He's not talking about the pagan or secular world as we might call it. 
He's talking about those who are trying to peel away members of the flock, and they're not truth-tellers at all. Their very identity is that of a liar. Their consciences are seared. They take good things made by God, and they make them wicked, verse 4. They do what our culture is doing right now. You see, the first century, just about 2,000 years ago, looks a very lot like our century. People say, we don't really need the Bible anymore. It's not relevant. Nothing could be more relevant for this age than the Bible. We are in first century-like days where evil is good and good is evil. We are in an age where we are taught that good truths from the Word of God are wicked. And so, just like the Apostle Paul is cautioning Timothy that he's going to face severe challenges from liars who bring in diabolical teachings into the church, so too we face this challenge. Paul frequently discusses false teaching. It's not a small problem. This isn't something for somebody to handle who only likes talking about the cults or something like this and reading books about cultish teachings. No, we all need to understand the danger, the real danger of false teaching. One commentator notes the character of these false teachers. He says this, the false teaching in question being as to its origin from the father of lies, the devil. These figures are the fit representatives and agents of such a cause, of the devil's own cause. They are not sincere, he writes, straightforward, truth-loving men, but persons living in hypocrisy as their natural element, speaking lies as their proper vocation, men of subtle and sophisticated minds who have no relish for the pure gospel and assume the profession of a regard to it only that they might more advantageously propagate their views and practices. In simpler language, this commentator is saying, these men have no love for the truth, they are from the father of lies, and they get into the church and teach lies, doctrines of demons, and so on, in order to benefit themselves. All of this shows you that you yourself are in a battle for your soul. Again, you may not have been conscious of making that choice to enter a battle, but you're in one whether you recognize it or have ever been told it or not. You're in a battle for your soul. We are in war, spiritual war. And the last two years, as Brad alluded to, have showed us that in spades. We are in all-out war for the church. If we do not stand as the people of light, the people of God, if we acquiesce to liars, the light will go out among us in our country. The stakes are tremendously high, and Satan uses schemes. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 before Paul talks about putting on spiritual armor of God, he indicates to us that Satan is crafty. Satan will use, Ephesians 6, any scheme he can 
We've faced a real virus the last few years that has taken some folks out. And yet, we have also seen this virus be used to shut down the gathered worship of the living Christ. And there is no asterisk in our Bible in Hebrews 10.25 that tells us that we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And yet, we have been told to operate as if there is an asterisk, as if in a public health crisis we do not meet. Brothers, there are schemes at work to shut down the church. There are liars out there who would have us stop preaching the word, stop ministering the word, stop being fed the word, and this is desperately dangerous. Behind all these teachers, though, there is a greater foe, the devil. The devil wants to destroy you. The devil wants to take you down. The devil wants to destroy your marriage. The devil wants to destroy your children. The devil wants to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ above all. But praise God, there is another on the battlefield. The Son of God came to destroy the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There is one infinitely stronger than you and me who has come to fight for us and has faced down the devil at the cross and has, by his blood, bought back sinners from the grave. And when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are claimed by God and the devil no longer has the power to accuse us and hold us in fear and terrify us all our days, our people around us not living in terror today. The good news is there is the Son of God, and he has come to destroy the works of the devil, and he has come to destroy the power of fear that we are entrapped in naturally because of our sin. And so we are free in Christ. This is the great need we have Christ, and we need to be shepherded and cared for in the church because men are in spiritual war. Every last man in here is in war. This leads to our second truth. Men need training for the war we're in. Men need training for the war we're in. We see this in verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, Paul writes, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil, and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul teaches Timothy that he has a duty. Timothy is pastoring a church as a young man in the context of this passage, and Paul wants Timothy to understand that Timothy is akin to a soldier of Christ or depending on how we interpret some of the metaphors here, 
an athlete of Christ. Really, the the two are, are very closely connected. What is an athlete but a soldier at play? Timothy needs to help his flock understand that every person under his spiritual care is in a spiritual war against evil lies, and so Timothy needs to communicate these truths to the church. If you put these things before the brothers. Timothy needs to make this plain to everybody. Trusting Jesus is not a life upgrade. It's not a vitamin boost. It is a command of God. It is a charge from the heavens. You're not just making a lifestyle decision that is advantageous to you if you trust Christ. You are responding to the charge of the heavens. You are hearing and answering the summons of the one true king of the earth. This would have gone beyond the church, but the men of the church had responsibility to hear these words and respond to them as Timothy puts them before the brothers. The men of the church, you understand, have responsibility for themselves, their wives, their children, and the congregation in a broader sense. You see, brothers, Against what our culture says, the Bible teaches us that God created Adam first. That is not just a matter of timing. Adam happened to show up first in the Garden of Eden, a real historical Adam in a real historical garden that leads to a real historical fall. Adam is made first because the New Testament will teach us Adam is created to lead his wife, to have headship over his wife and therefore, based on that, to have leadership in the church. So what I'm trying to say to you is God, from the start, has called men to lead. God has given authority to men, authority that must be stewarded very carefully and with great sobriety and humility and dependence upon God. What I am saying goes as much against the spirit of the age as it could, as any idea could, and yet, I don't care, to quote Daryl Harrison. I am here to stand for the Word of God, and the Word of God teaches the good truth that men are created first, not in order to lord themselves over their wife or their children, but to lay their life down for the good of others. You see, biblical headship, biblical leadership, does not look like self-exaltation, does it? Biblical leadership, biblical headship, biblical authority is real leadership, do not misunderstand. But it, it is always in some form going to look like self-sacrifice. That's what it looks like in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So men really and truly are called to headship and leadership and authority. Every man in some form is made by God in that form. And yet, the the form that leadership and authority is to take is not the exaltation of self, but is the strengthening of society, of a church, of a family. Timothy himself needs what every man needs, according to this passage. Timothy, excuse me, verse six, has been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is the foundation of men's ministry. It's the strong water 
It's the truth of God. Good doctrine is the fountainhead of everything good. By contrast, irreverent mythology, verse 7, is the fountainhead of everything bad. What does Paul say there? Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is hilarious because today we are told ideas like Genesis 1 through 3, what I was just alluding to, is a myth. We're told that Genesis 1 through 3 or Genesis 1 through 11 is mythological history. The early chapters of the Bible aren't literal history or true history. They're sort of pretend history. We're told this about the resurrection as well in our day and age, that the resurrection mythologically occurred or spiritually occurred, but it didn't actually physically occur. And we're being told this from within the church. Professing Christians are saying such things. People around us are trying to save the Christian faith by abandoning tenets of the Christian faith. And they're trying to rescue all of us from the dread embarrassment of what's called young earth creationism. And here's what I personally would like to be rescued from, embarrassed evangelicals. I I would rather you not try to save the Christian faith by abandoning tenets of the Christian faith. I would rather we stand on the word of God and believe all it teaches and not be embarrassed by it. Brothers, nothing in the Bible is a myth. The Bible warns us not to have anything to do with irreverent and silly myths. Those who say the creation account is a myth are the ones themselves who are promoting irreverent, silly myths. We interpret Scripture according to its genre, its type. Absolutely, we must do so. But Genesis 1 through 3 is true. It is history. Paul's approach to ideas like this is quite simply, Paul's a man's man, isn't he? It's quite simply to have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with it. Focus on your task, he says at the second half of verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. That's your duty. Paul clearly believes in training. He emphasizes it three times in this section. Paul does not want men to be spiritually weak and formless. He wants us to be strong. You see, we are saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, but the grace of God does not leave us weak. We are the weak ones, aren't we? We don't have all the answers. We're not the strong man. We're not the one who can save our soul. Only Christ can. But what does God do once he saves you? He calls you to training. He calls you to strength. He calls you to arm up. He calls you to pursue godliness. Verse 8 tells us godliness is of value in every way. Bodily training matters. It's of some value, Paul says here. So the word of God teaches us to steward our body well, and men need to lead in this. But godliness is of far, far, far greater value. Now, I don't know about you, but before I fully understood the value of godliness, of spiritual training, which is the calling of all of us in here, I understood the value, at least limited value, of bodily training. I grew up in coastal Maine, 
and I grew up watching the Bird era Celtics. Okay, so hold, hold on, hold on. We're gonna be friends, I promise you, I think. Uh, and so what I would do in watching the Celtics, my beloved Boston Celtics growing up, is I would try to emulate and mimic the great Celtic athletes of that era. And I would, I tell my son this, my son is, is 10, I mentioned him already, I'm trying to communicate, you know, the importance of discipline in a pursuit, not taking sports too seriously, right? Men all around us are doing that. They take unserious things seriously and serious things unseriously. We're all tempted by that in some form today. But there is a value in discipline of various kinds. And so I tell my son, I say, Gavin, when I would dribble my left hand to improve my left hand, that's what they said to do at basketball camp in Maine. Pine Tree Basketball Camp in Maine. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, I would go home. Maine has produced many elite Division III basketball players. Okay, <laughs> I, would, I would go home and I would dribble until my fingertips bled. Yes, I am now old enough that I am communicating stories like this to my son. It's the equivalent of the walking uphill both ways to school. Okay, anyway. And so my son looks at me kind of like this, puzzled. But in, in reality, I think a lot of young men understand at some level anyway, having a cause to give yourself, to devote yourself to, that costs you. Brothers, that's what men want. Men at some instinctual level very badly want a greater cause to give themselves to. They, they want something that challenges them. Yes, our culture, in one sense, doesn't want to challenge us, and our flesh likes that. We like laziness. We like softness in our sin. But the call of God in men that echoes in all of our minds is a call not to weakness, but to strength. Not strength in ourselves, ultimately, strength in God. And that is what the Apostle Paul is calling Timothy and the whole church to pursue men very much in the mix. Train yourself for godliness. Instead of dribbling so much with your left hand that your fingers bleed, or you may be called to that. If so, great. But instead of focusing on that at an ultimate level, read your Bible until your fingers bleed. Pray until your knees or your hips ache. Serve your church until your back yells at you. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That is the call of God to us. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's vital to pursue spiritual discipline, but you're not going to get this from the world today, from our culture today. The church is where we all train together. The church is like the ancient gymnasium where athletes and soldiers would come together and train and get stronger and spar together. The church is that environment, according to the Apostle Paul, where Timothy and all the, the church of God, including men, are to train for godliness. And we are to get ready, among other duties, we're to get ready for conflict. What does Psalm 144 verse one say in the LSB? Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, 
my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war. What kind of war? War of a spiritual kind. War against sin, your sin. War against the flesh. War against the devil. War against the world. We are being trained in the church for war, not war against flesh and blood. War against something far more powerful. Principalities and powers, spiritual forces of the devil that want us destroyed. Yahweh, the true God, helps us and trains us in the church. Men need the church. It is true that Jesus is gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine. I, Jesus says, am gentle and lowly in heart. But Jesus is also the son and root of David. Jesus is the divine warrior king who comes to ransom us back and destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is incredibly gentle and kind, and we need to be shaped by that as men. But we must also never miss that Jesus is the greater David, and Jesus has come to do war. Jesus has come to fight the devil. That's what he does. That's what his miracles accomplish all through the Gospels. He's rolling back the curse. He's demonstrating his divinity, but he's also rolling back the reign of evil and overcoming the devil and calling evil spirits out of people and healing people and raising the dead and all that work is warfare, successful warfare. Men, you have a strong savior who has come to fight for you. And even now, seated at the Father's right hand, he is still fighting for you. He is praying for you. Satan is praying against you. But the Son of God is praying for you. And very soon, the Son of God will come back, and then his fighting for you will be seen by all, and he will destroy the devil once and for all time. Until that day, you and I need to train ourselves, as this passage indicates, for godliness. Too many men today have no spiritual training. They are without spiritual strength. They are without discipline. They are without hope. They are without counsel. They are without rebuke. They are without encouragement. They are without comfort. And this is what the church of Jesus Christ gives us. It trains us to live godly lives. It trains us to love our wife like Christ loves the church. It trains us to not provoke our children but train them well in love. It trains us to evangelize our neighbor in love. It trains us to work hard unto God's glory in our vocation. It trains us to build a life that honors God from roots to branches. Godliness is of great value, verse eight. We must toil and strive at it, verse 10. This is our life's work, but we need more. We need more than the good doctrine that shapes us that comes from a pulpit, that comes from the preaching and teaching ministry of the church and flows into all corners of God's congregation. We also need examples. And this leads to our third and final truth. 
men need examples of godliness in the church. Men need examples. Every man does. Verse 11, we pick up here and see this truth. Command and teach these things, Paul says. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul here urges Timothy to teach all we have covered. That's what verse 11 says, command and teach these things. Command these things. The church is not a spiritual suggestion booth. The church is where the edicts of heaven come down to us. And we, as Christians, as soldiers, receive our orders and follow them. But there's more that we need than the commanding teaching of the word of God that the church ministers. Paul says we also need an example. This is what Timothy was to be. He's a young pastor, as I have said. And what is, what is he specifically supposed to be an example in? Second half of verse 12. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Thus we see that men need examples. You're not weak in a bad way, if you think to yourself, how am I supposed to live this out? How am I supposed to get this done and be a godly man for the glory of God? All of us need help. We need examples. This is called discipleship in the church. Discipleship is teaching and example, really. But men need discipleship. Men need someone to train them. Brother, let me ask you a question real quick. Do you have anyone who is training you or has trained you? Or, depending on where you are in life, if you are a mature Christian, are you training anyone? Are you involved in shepherding someone from the next generation? Let me talk for just a second to the more mature generation. Young men today have grown up, in, in many cases, in absolute chaos. They don't have a father figure in, in a good number of situations. They haven't had a dad who took them aside and showed them how to be godly. If they have a father, they may very well have a fractured or difficult relationship with their father. Young men today are growing up in the kind of society I was sketching out at the beginning of this talk. They're being trained that they need to not be manly. If they even hear the word manly, they're being encouraged to laugh at it because our culture thinks manliness is ridiculous. It mocks it at every turn. Now one movie or one TV show after another features an actor who used to have a little bit of self-respect 
and now mocks himself. And, and I'm not here to, you know, sort of sort out the entertainment culture or something like this, but there's something you're seeing there. Men, especially young men, are ashamed of being men. And the younger generation desperately needs discipleship. And younger men, let me speak to you for just a minute. This means that you need to embrace the humility of recognizing that you need help. And it will tremendously benefit you to have an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Don't don't fall prey to the Ikea trap that I mentioned earlier. The trap of thinking that just because it's in this little box, this Ikea box, that you can assemble it without looking at the instructions. In a much greater sense, as a Christian, you need help, you need instruction, you need an example, you need wisdom from a godly man. So let's, hey, guys, let's call off the standoff between the generations. And let's have, in this church, and in every church, we can get it, a healthy discipleship culture where the younger generation is humble and says, you know what, I need help, and just finds even one man to meet up with on a bi-weekly basis for coffee to talk through how to be a Christian. And the older generation doesn't step back and say, I don't have anything to give. Even just one young man that you pull aside and show love to and kindness to and develop and encourage and correct and train. If we could get that kind of culture back, we would have strong, churches. And that is the greatest need of our day. We need strong men, and if we have them, we will have strong churches. And I mean strong in the grace of God. Timothy, as I say, is supposed to be a living example. He needs to feed the church. The people, verse 13, need what? Public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. So that tells us that every one of us needs these things. Men, you need to be faithful to your local church. You need to be faithful to hear the word read. The word of God has so much power that just hearing it read can transform you. Charles Spurgeon was once warming up for Sunday and he went out into the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London when it was totally empty, no one there. And he was, he was warming up for his sermon. He was the greatest preacher, Baptist preacher of the 19th century in London. And so he goes to his pulpit, a great pulpit, just like this one, sturdy and steady. And he, and he stands there, and he's got a you know, powerful acoustic element that he's in, just like this. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a worker up in the rafters who Spurgeon didn't know was there and heard the word of God shouted out and got saved. The word of God has power. We need to hear it read. We need to hear exhortation, verse 13, from it. We need teaching. Men 
need exhortation, and, and men respond to exhortation. Do you ever miss, those of you like me who are now living in the halicon mists of memory, do you ever miss high school sports? Wasn't it hard to be in high school sports or in band or in drama or whatever pushed you? Wasn't it challenging to have all these rehearsals and all these practices and all this hardship? Wasn't there also, though, something glorious in it? Wasn't there something that calls to you as a man? We want and need exhortation, verse 13. And that's what we're losing in the church today, where so many pulpits are just suggestion boxes. We don't need suggestion boxes. We need exhortation. We need a charge. We need a summons. And that's what Timothy is supposed to provide as a pastor, and that is what helps us understand what men need. Men need examples. Men need exhortation. Men need teaching. Timothy is equipped to give all of this to his people. Verse 14, he has a gift. It's been communicated to him through the laying on of hands. And now Paul wants the entire flock to see his progress in godliness. Timothy needs to be mindful of these things. The Greek word melita, mindful of these things in verse 15, uh, immerse yourself in these things, is found only here in Acts 4.25. And this Greek word means to let things have their proper place in your soul. Immerse yourself in godliness. Be a glutton for godliness. Be a glutton for maturity. Forget immaturity. Forget the world. Embrace God. God is the greatest good there is in this world. God is greater than any other good there is. Drink it in. Feed your soul. The culture's not going to do this. The culture's trying to shut preaching and teaching of the word of God down. Don't let it happen. Feed on these things. Practice these things. Just as you see men being an example of godliness, Timothy and those who follow him in the church are supposed to go and do likewise. Your faith isn't supposed to be stored up in a beautiful little, mm, look at that little jar. Put that little, let's put it right there, boop, on the shelf. Look at it. Look at the beautiful doctrine of God. We just keep it right there. Oh, don't, oh, don't you dare take the lid off of it. No, we're supposed to take good doctrine, learn from godly examples, and then practice it. Put it to work. Serve the church. Evangelize the lost. Break the glass. Have the conversation at your workplace over Christ that your coworker, your family member, your friend doesn't want to have. You will find your faith growing stronger as you, verse 15, practice these things and immerse yourself in them. None of us would think that we would make progress in any area of life without practice. It takes practice to do anything well. It takes practice to be good at video games. It takes practice to immerse yourself in entertainment culture. It takes practice just to know what's going on in sports. I still, at age 40, am not entirely sure what's happening in hockey, for example. I don't know what is happening when the puck goes back and then the ref blows the... W okay, anyway, clearly no one else is out there. I'm in California. I'm bringing my New Englandness to you. I apologize. 
It takes practice to learn anything. Well, so too does your faith. You need to practice your faith. As you practice it, God blesses you. This passage is teaching us, and you get stronger. And in all this, you need to keep, verse 16, a close watch on yourself. This entails that even as a Christian, you can spin out. There is a wildness in the human heart. There is a wildness in sin. When we become a born-again believer, sin's power is broken. We become, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation. It's glorious. But even though the power of sin has been broken, sin controlling us, over. The presence of sin remains. We all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2. One of the best ways to grow as a Christian man, as a Christian in general, is simply to recognize that fact. It's not to go over to the bookstore and buy nine different 700-page systematic theologies and read them all. One of the best ways to grow in godliness is to say these magic words. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. There are marriages that are healed by those words. There are fractured relationships with children that are restored by those words. There are decades of familial conflict or conflict among friends that gets resolved at least in part, through words like that. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes things are healed miraculously in in almost a moment's notice. There's not a one-size-fits-all experience. And yet you and I glorify God and keep a close watch on ourselves when we live in humility. The humility that God births in us when we become a Christian when we're born again and we ask God to forgive us, that humility doesn't stop on day one. Well, now I got that done. Never have to say I'm sorry again. No, Martin Luther said the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance, not a life of penance. That's what the Catholics taught. Not a life of doing good works over and over and over again to justify yourself or somehow keep yourself in the vector beam of God's grace. No, The whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. The Christian life begins in repentance. The Christian life begins in, I am sorry. I have offended you. I am wrong. I am not right. I am living a charade. Forgive me. Thank you that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse me and satisfy your just wrath. But the Christian life The life of repentance doesn't stop there. The whole of it is a life of repentance for us. That's what it means to keep a close watch on yourself. You live in humility. You do the hard work that challenges you and challenges me of saying, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I was wrong. And even if there isn't a relationship 
to, to play this out in. You watch your life and your doctrine, and where you see yourself slipping, you confess that to God. This is an all-of-life pursuit, and one of the best ways it happens is by the regular rhythm of gathering with the church, the people of God, for worship of the living God, coming under the ministry of sound doctrine from the Word of God, weekly having your sins exposed as the Word of God is preached, praising God through song, being comforted and encouraged by the the gospel hope that we have in Christ, being exhorted and strengthened in the ministry of God. All of this is a gift of God to us. We're about to wrap up, but just know this, men. The church is not a weight around your neck. The church has given you to be wind at your back. It's given you to help you, strengthen you, train you spiritually for God's glory. So three words of application, super fast. First, trust Jesus as your Savior. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Second, join a local church. Become a member under accountability of this church or a church in your area that is sound and strong and preaches the word. Third, serve your church. It may be humble service. God loves humble service. God's eyes are not on the proud. God's eyes are on the humble. God loves the humble. What is more humble than the Son of God incarnating, taking on flesh, dying on a cross for us? God loves humble service. In conclusion, we are told that we're gonna be happiest today when we go our own way. We are told we don't need the church. We are told today that we can Zoom church or just click play a little button on the web browser before us, get our little bread beside us, take our own communion. You don't need the church. Just do your own thing. The Bible says the dead level opposite. The Bible says that every person needs the church, and the Bible teaches us that every man needs the church. Men, you are not here to count your life precious for your own sake. You are here to spend your life for others. You are here to be engaged in the great fight of the ages. You are in a war, but if you are under the banner of Christ, you are not on the losing side. It may look that way now, but you are on the side of victory. You may stand alone for Christ now. It may be won against 400, as in the days of Elijah, against the prophets of Baal. It matters not. One man with God is a man in the majority. You and I, you and I need the church and praise God by the grace of Jesus Christ. We have it. The doors are open wide for you to enter and serve and find joy. Men need the church. Let's pray. Father God, my prayer is that you will work in all of us None of us is humble as we should be. None of us serves the church as we should. None of us loves our wives as we should, our children, 
works the way we should unto your glory. We all stumble in many ways. Thank you that you have given us Jesus. Thank you that he bled and died for sinners like us. My prayer is that these men in this room and watching will join the great cause of the ages and will serve and love your church. We need you so badly, Father, and we need your church. Help us to have the humility to admit that and the urgency to act on that. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.